Thank you for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We're currently in a sermon series on the biblical book of Leviticus. Now, this is a book that's been described as weird, gross, and backward. And the fact is that there's a lot of stuff going on in Leviticus that's strange to us today, which is all the more reason for us to study it. Because when we get below the surface, we're going to find God's beating heart of love for you and for me. If you need anything at all, please reach out to us at tablechurchdsm.org. Be sure to come worship with us Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Community Playhouse in Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks for listening. Morning, everybody. It's great to have you here at Table Church. Welcome to the last week of our series on Leviticus. Um, It's just been fun for me. I hope it's been fun for you. I love to dig into texts that are maybe a little less studied by, uh, by people in the church sometimes. And I hope that it's been fulfilling and rich and, um, I don't know, helpful for you as we've gone through uh, the book of Leviticus. Hey, I want you to know about something we got going on. So our ministry center, as many of you probably know, we don't just meet here on Sundays. We also have a building that we own, too small for worship on Sundays, but just right for uh, doing other kinds of ministry the other six days of the week. Well, the outside of our ministry center looks like the set for the movie Tarzan right now. It's just overgrown, and there's vegetation everywhere. And so we need to clean it up, and we would love your help. It's going to be at 9 a.m. on September 10th. We're going to clean up the yard at the ministry center. We'd love your help. Sign up on your connection card. Bring gloves. Bring uh, yard tools, whatever they're called, and uh, we'll put you to work. And it'll be fun, too. So, I don't know, write the word Tarzan on your connection card. Seriously, write Tarzan on your connection card, and I'll know that you're coming, and we'll be in touch. All right, we sure hope that you come out and help us. It won't take long at all because we'll have many hands. We're going to do a whirlwind tour through the whole biblical narrative today on this whiteboard. Sound good? So buckle up. Here we go. I'm going to start with a verse uh, that may be familiar to some of us here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Those are waters right there, in case you couldn't tell. You may know how the rest of the story goes. God forms his creation out of this primordial chaos. That's what water always seems to represent in ancient literature. It's like formless, chaotic, kind of unformed space. But God, out of the chaos, brings order and forms his creation. And this creation, we know, uh, was the form of a garden called Eden. Now, Eden, it seems, must have been on a mountain. And if you've read the passages before, you're thinking right now, well, Phil, I don't think the text says mountain anywhere in there. And you'd be right. But in the ancient world, gods were almost always thought to dwell on top of mountains. Just think about Zeus and Mount Olympus, right, in ancient Greece, and you could go on about that. Um, But also, there's other clues in the text that suggest that Eden was on a mountain. For example, it's laden with gold and jewels, just as you might find in a mountainous region. Um, You've got rivers flowing from it. In fact, there's four rivers flowing from Eden. And so it seems to be the case that, that Eden is really kind of like the mountain of God upon which he dwells, like his Mount Olympus, you know. 
So that's kind of what we have going on. And in the center of this garden, God puts his priest, Adam. And Adam is called to uh, tend the garden, which means basically to care for this precious creation that God has made. Adam and his wife Eve are God's image bearers and given the task of ruling over creation and dwelling with God in harmony. And so for a fleeting moment, we have it. Creation is complete. Everything that God was going for is done. It says in chapter 2 of Genesis, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So we have a word for this, this moment. We call it Sabbath. Sabbath is not rest in the sense that we often think of rest. God was not tired. God does not sweat. God did not need a break like we need a break from labor. Sabbath is God and his people together in harmony. Sabbath means that God took up residence in his creation. Sabbath is the point of everything. Sabbath is the reason you were made, to be with your God in perfect harmony. And so God would make the number seven holy, because it was on the seventh day that he rested, that he Sabbathed with his people. And on the seventh day, his people were to have a Sabbath as well, God and his people together. But sadly, the Sabbath does not last very long. You see, being priests in the garden of God was not enough for Adam and Eve they wanted, to be, they wanted more than that. They wanted to be like God, and so they ate the forbidden fruit. Sin enters the world and sends things back, spiraling down into chaos once again. God looks down at his creation, and he's, his heart is broken. It's so much evil rampant across the world that he says, I have to start over. And so he sends the waters once again to cover the earth. Once again, the earth is formless and empty. But God brings one righteous man, a man named Noah, and his family through the waters on an ark. And as the waters recede, Noah comes to rest in the ark on another mountain. This mountain's called Mount Ararat. And as the waters go down, Noah sacrifices to God an offering. And remember in, earlier in the series, we learned the smoke of the sacrifice rises to God. It says it's a pleasing aroma to God. And we think perhaps now we'll have this Sabbath. Perhaps this will be it. Well, sadly, Noah's descendants rebel against God too. In fact, they do the same thing as Adam and Eve. They build a tower. They think, well, we can rival God. And so they build a tower in order to try to reach God and, and equal him. And so God comes down. It's called the Tower of Babel, by the way. Maybe you've heard of it. God comes down and he scatters them across the earth in chaos and sin once again reign. But one day God calls another faithful man. His name is Abraham. He comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and all nations of the world will be blessed through you. Moses, or Abraham and his wife Sarah, they laugh. How can this be? We're too old. We don't even have any kids. God says, I'm going to give you a son. And sure enough, Sarah becomes pregnant with their son, Isaac. And she gives birth to Isaac, and, 
and it appears that perhaps Sabbath will come once again. But then God does the unthinkable. You see, God needs to know that he has Abraham's heart, that he won't be like Adam, and that he won't be like Noah. And so he comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. And brokenhearted, Abraham takes Isaac. Together they climb a mountain. It's called Mount Moriah. And Abraham binds his son, places him on an altar. And just as he's about to raise the knife, the angel of the Lord comes out and takes his hand and stops him from doing it. God provides a ram. He says, he wanted to know that God, God wanted to know that he had your whole heart, Abraham, but God provides a ram and Abraham sacrifices the ram to God. And, and once again, hope is restored. Perhaps now we will see the Sabbath that we all want. But sadly, Abraham's descendants find themselves once again in chaos, this time in the form of slavery. We'll start over here now. Slavery in Egypt. So this one we're going to call Egypt. But God calls a faithful Israelite named Moses. And Moses leads the people literally through the sea, through the waters this time. God parts the Red Sea. They go through the waters and they arrive at another mountain, this one. It's called Mount Sinai. And this time, God says, okay, Moses, this time I'm going to write it down for you. And, and he writes it down and gives the people the law. But no sooner had Moses come down the mountain that the people are already worshiping an idol. And so once again, chaos and sin reign. And so God gives them a book called Leviticus, and Leviticus gives instructions on how to have Sabbath with God. And you know what Leviticus does? It gives them directions on how to create a miniature Eden. A miniature Eden is what it is. It's, and we call this the tabernacle. The tabernacle. It's this tent that they carried with them wherever they went. And in the tent is where they would sacrifice and worship and that kind of thing. The tabernacle was a mini Eden. You're like, well, how does, how does that work? Well, think about it for a second. It was laden with gold and jewelry just like Eden was. There was angels woven into the fabric of the curtain that protected the entrance to the holiest place. Just like Eden had an angel guarding the entrance. It's facing east just like Eden was. The tabernacle was a mini Eden. And one day a year at the high point of the calendar, called the Day of Atonement, the priest would enter the Holy of Holies and he would enter back into Eden. It says this in Leviticus 16, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. Listen, it is a day of Sabbath rest. For one day, they finally have it, Sabbath. But sadly, it was never enough. The tabernacle, the mini Eden, it was never enough. It was really only a model of a deeper truth. Hebrews 10, our verse today says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Every day after day, the priest would stand in the tabernacle and offer sacrifices to God. 
but it was never enough. They could never really take away sins. And, and, and so the people, once again, fall into sin and chaos, back to where we began. Until one day, God calls another faithful Israelite. His name is David. David and his son Solomon, they construct like a, like a, permanent, temp, or a permanent tabernacle called a temple, and they do it. They do it on a mountain called Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And under David and Solomon, Israel experiences uh, unprecedented peace and prosperity, and they think, maybe we've made it. Maybe finally Sabbath has returned. We finally are with our God. But unfortunately, David's descendants sinned against God. They refused to follow him, and chaos reigns once again, this time in what we will call exile. Assyria and Babylon, they come along and they capture them. God allows them to capture the Israelites because of their sin. There's a Bible scholar named Michael Morales whose book has been very helpful in this series for me. He asks the question, he says, if we were to sum up the story of the Bible in a question, he says, this would be the question. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who will be the one to finally do what Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and the priesthood and even King David could never do? Who will be the one to ascend to God and to establish the Sabbath rest. Who will be the one? And for 400 years, Israel languishes in exile until one day God calls another faithful Israelite to climb another mountain called Calvary and to offer another sacrifice. And Jesus, the Son of God, would give himself for the sins of the world, but this time there would be no one to stop the hand of the executioner. This time the Son of God would die. But this sacrifice is different because this time death could not hold him down. He would rise from the dead and he would ascend to God. And you know what's interesting about Jesus' ascension. When Jesus ascends to God, it's not the ghost of Jesus that ascends to God. It's not the spirit of Jesus that ascends to God. It's Jesus in the flesh, Jesus the man. As Jesus rises heavenward, so he takes humanity with him as well. It says in Ephesians 2, 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You see, God came to earth in order to do what no other person could do, to unite us with himself, to achieve that Sabbath that we were searching for, hungering for, but could never achieve ourselves. And so Hebrews now says, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. This is the point of it all. Imagine there's a fish swimming in a lake. He's a big, beautiful fish, the envy of the entire lake. All the fish want to be like him. But to him, the water seems boring. He wants more. He wants to be on land. And so one day, this fish leaps out of the water and lands on the dock. I've made it, he finally says. But a moment later, he starts to realize, you know what, maybe the dock isn't all it's cracked up to be. He can't breathe. He can't move. All he can do is pathetically flop around. 
But imagine this same fish, instead of regretting, instead of admitting to himself that maybe he doesn't actually know the best way to live, he goes on for the last two, three minutes of his life, convinced that he's finally made it, convinced that he's the man, that he knows how to live his little fishy life. That's the difference between life with God and life on our own. See, we were made to be with God. We were made for the Sabbath. We were made to be in God like a fish is in water, not just with God, but in God. Paul even says it like this, in him we live and move and have our being. That's the bottom line. This series, we have a tagline. This is called Leviticus, what God really wants. You know what God really wants? What God really wants is you. That's what Leviticus is all about. He wants to be with you. Leviticus is God's instructions to an ancient people saying, let me show you how to thrive, how to be with me, how to be in me. But Leviticus, we know now, was never enough. And I don't think it was ever meant to be enough. It was always meant to point us to something deeper, truer. Jesus Christ. Colossians says as much. It says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So, Ask yourself the question, do you feel like the fish flopping around on the dock? Are you tired? Do you want rest? Do you wonder why life seems so complicated? The crazy thing is that sometimes when we're flopping around, we think to ourselves, God is punishing me. No, you're just experiencing the natural consequences of your, of your decisions, right? Right? God doesn't make anybody jump onto the dock. God doesn't make anybody live apart from him. In fact, God is doing the opposite. He's saying, hey, let me put you in the water. That's what Leviticus is to this ancient people. Let me put you in the water. Let me show you how to thrive. But often our response is, no, you know, let me do it myself over and over and over and over again. And so Jesus had to come and climb another mountain, the seventh mountain, by the way, in case you were counting in order to bring Sabbath to us. The Bible is incredibly clear, and it's confirmed by all of human existence. We can't do it ourselves, and yet we try. We try to convince ourselves that we know best how to live, that life here on this dock, that's really where happiness is to be found. It's really what all the cool kids want to do, and it's strangling us. Psychologists today have a phrase, the phrase, hurry sickness. John Mark Comer points out, hurry has officially become a disease in our generation. Hurry sickness. We're moving so fast, we're making ourselves sick. In 1967, a Senate subcommittee predicted that by 1985, all of our technological advancements would allow us to work only 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. There's only one reaction to that, it's to chuckle, right? Before Edison invented the light bulb, did you know that people slept an average of 11 hours a night? I'm running on half of that right now. And so today, we download sleep apps on the devices that keep us awake in order to help us sleep, like we're tied up in knots. Look, we were not made for chaos. We were made to rest in Christ. Many people look at Leviticus and they think, well, look at all that stuff God wanted us to do just to be worthy of him. They think God must be some sort of like egotistical maniac to require all of that of people. But that's to miss the point. Remember what we learned for the first week? It's not about the bull. It's not about all that stuff. 
Leviticus is about God saying, let me show you how we can be together. Let me show you how you can thrive, how you can be who you were supposed to be in the very beginning. Let me show you how to have this. What God really wants is you. He wants your heart, not part of it. He wants all of it. And it's not because he's a greedy, insecure egomaniac. It's because outside of him we're like a fish out of water, flopping around helplessly on the dock. And so the only way back to Sabbath is for the church to become a counterculture against the chaos that exists outside. To help us resist the magnetic pull of the chaos around us. The Harvard Business Review conducted a study about, uh, on social change in America. And what they found is that in previous generations, um, leisure time was a sign of status and wealth. But today that's flipped. Today, leisure time is a sign that you're lazy and you must not be making anything of yourself. Today, busyness is a sign of status. What this means is that if you don't have time for people, you must be important. So to create a counterculture of Sabbath, we'll need to do some countercultural stuff. We will have to, listen, say no to some things. We'll have to say yes to the right thing. What things do you need to say no to in your life in order to say yes to the right things in your life? In what ways do you need to maybe say no to the chaos out there in order to say yes to the community of God, to your family, to spending time with the Lord? What's the no you need to say in order to say the right yes? Look, there's an entire world available to us. It's a world where you can walk intimately with God. You can be secure in his love, but we miss that world because we don't take the time to enter it. But what God really wants is you. The question, the real question is, do you really want God? When my son, Rowan, uh, he was younger and he got hurt and he was crying and he slowly walked to his mommy with his arms up, just said, mommy, I want you. Because he knew that somehow being in his mommy's arms was the right place to be when you're hurting. It wouldn't necessarily mean that the pain would suddenly go away, but he knew this. It's that when you're secure in love, pain has less power. And I think that that's the calling for us here in this life, to be secure in God's love. It doesn't mean the pain's going to stop. It doesn't mean everything's going to suddenly be fun and easy. But it means that the pain has less power. When we run to our Father, we'll find that even though we will still get hurt, those hurts have less power because we are where we belong and the chaos cannot touch us. And so I have a challenge for you this week, and it's pretty simple. It's simply this. Dwell with God. Embrace his presence this week. Not just this week, but always. What are some things you need to say no to right now in order to say the right kind of yes? In fact, I'd like to do that today. I'd like for us to do a, a, an exercise, a practice, if you will, just simply dwelling in, in God's presence. Maybe every morning you do this. We have Psalm 63 uh, on cards that I think you received on the way in. Did you receive those? Go ahead and pull it out. There will also be the text on the screen above me. But I just want to read through Psalm 63 because I think that it encapsulates this idea of Sabbath, that really not just Leviticus, but the whole Bible is, is moving toward. This is the vision of, of creation in general. I'm going to read it slowly and deliberately, and I just want you to like enter it. You know, I want you to experience it. I want you to have it in your heart 
cry out to God for this to be you. Starting in verse 1. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Do you ever feel that way? I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. You hear that? God's love is even better than life. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. By the way, we're about to sing a song. I dare you to lift your hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips on my mouth, I will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. When you can't sleep tonight, next time you can't sleep, remember that verse. Just pray. What better time to spend with the Lord? Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. In other words, you have nothing to fear. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Lord God, let it be true of us. Let, we be, let us be a people who are a non-anxious presence in a chaotic world because we are secure in, in your love. We know who you are and we know who we are. May it be true of us, we pray in your name. Amen.